0: This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. It's definitely one of the sort of mentors of my life what are you waiting for, uh, folks around here who are starting to get to know me? Know that I don't tend to wait on a lot. It's like might as well just, just get her done. Let's try it. Let's figure it out. Let's let's see if there's interest in that. Um, and uh, churches, I think, and human beings are inclined to sort of rest back. And what can happen is you rest back, and then y- you know your joints freeze up a little bit, and you're find it's harder to get up than you remembered that it was. And what we need to do instead is just sort of program ourselves for constant change. Program ourselves for constant movement. Paul was a man in motion. He didn't rest back. And as a result, there was a tremendous amount of good done across uh, uh, the territory uh, of Rome uh, through Asia, Turkey, Middle East, We've been telling the story of Paul, and we've been working on chapter nine, and here we are in chapter 22, and it seems like we just read the same story over again. And believe it or not, we're gonna hear that story again in chapter 29, because this particular story becomes so incredibly pivotal to Paul's story, and to what Paul is doing, and how Paul builds relationships relationships that become sacred and holy through his lifetime of evangelism. And we all know that Paul didn't sort of start this journey as that great a guy. He was on his way to Damascus. He had men with him who were dragging prisoners. He was foaming at the mouth. I guess we could use that metaphor of this was a mad dog. This guy was angry, bitter, violent, this was was not a good person, right? His heart was just dark. And when the light shows up, when Jesus interrupts this march to Damascus where Paul has succeeded in doing tremendous harm, the truth of Paul's blindness is revealed. The visions start. Paul was a visionary in the literal sense. He saw visions, and he sees Jesus, and he sees the light. And the visions follow, instructing him that go to the street called straight, the Roman road, take the Roman road. Take it to Ananias's house, Judas' house, and Ananias will meet you there. And Ananias does, despite his misgivings. Where we find Paul now is that he has come from Damascus, he, where he was practiced his beginning evangelism, spreading the word of God, sharing the transformation in his life that was unknowingly possible, and everything changed for him. But he was treated with real distrust, if you can imagine how difficult it might be to have somebody change so much and whether or not you believe it could really be true. And Paul had to flee from Damascus, lowered outside the gates in a basket. I love the basket that they use for that, by the way, is a uh, um, uh, a liturgically clean, liturgic isn't the word I want, Levitically clean basket showing that he is, in fact, changed yet again. All the imagery that show that there has been a change for Paul, except that Paul is still the same material human being he was before. And he goes to Jerusalem, but they're really nervous about him there, and he ends up traveling and going, taking the Roman roads across the empire and talking to people and changing lives. Well, he returns to Jerusalem This long journey by the time we get to Acts 22. And it is no better for him in Jerusalem now than it was after he was first converted. He's not finding any greater trust. He has two problems. The first problem is those he wounded who remember all too well the loved ones that he took from them in violent ways. And also the high priests who remember that he was supposed to be working for them and betrayed them and went off to that side. And we have factions. And Paul is at the center of these two factions and incurring wrath from both sides. And in those days, when you incurred wrath, it wasn't a polite call to 9 It was a violent beatdown. And Paul is literally being beaten for any reason you can think of and every reason that you can think of in Jerusalem. When the Roman guards come, pull him away. And after catching his breath a little bit, a little modicum of safety, he stops the Roman soldiers who have basically saved his life and he says, wait, I, I wanna talk to them. And he turns to the angry mob full of people who uh, think of him as a betrayer of Judean faith and all the right laws he's supposed to be following that he's not, and the people who think of him as the betrayer of the way and of the Christ believers and of everything good in the world for his abhorrent violence and he tells them his story. He says, I'm Paul of Tarsus, and I was trained the Levitical way, the way that the temple and the priests understand fully in the law. I have a full and complete grasp of the law, and all the legal checkboxes, I check them. And also, to those of you who are in the way, I'm sorry. I did wrong. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I do not persecute anyone anymore. Storytelling who we are helps us build bridges across wide ideological and human chasms. In looking up this um, sermon and doing research, I wanted, there's a line later on as he's being beaten about citizenship. Who is a citizen and who is not? Who can be beaten and who cannot? Who has the right to speak and who does not? Who has the right to exist in any certain physical place? And Paul is a citizen of Rome by birth. And so I started looking up immigration. I wanted to find a story that speaks to Paul's story And it took me into issues about race because in our country right now, immigration really isn't about immigration, it's about race. And I came across a TED talk by a young man named Simon Tam, who is an American of Chinese descent, and he has a rock band and he studies philosophy and his rock band is an all-Asian rock band, and he calls them, they call themselves the Slants. <laughs> it's their way of creating a pun around the way that sometimes people talk about people who are Asian, how their eyes are slanted, but also a sort of claiming of that, like, I'm going to give you a new slant on that story. I'm going to give you a new way of looking at that. And so it's a, a wonderful, subversive Um, band name. They had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get it, by the way. It was an interesting story in itself. So here he is an Asian man in an Asian band. And as you can imagine, sometimes the feedback they get isn't great. And he ran into a white supremacist, well, a lot, but one particular white supremacist, a person who held white supremacist views. And they engaged in an online conversation. Now, I'm not going to recommend anybody here engage in online conversation with anybody because it's an art form. Don't do it. It's really... But Tam has a way of talking to people. And he says, what we did was, what I tried to do was listen and ask questions. His saying is, and I think it's just simply ask questions, ask questions before making assumptions. Don't assume you already know who that person is, what their story is, and what they're about. And they I don't know how long this correspondence online took place, but it was visual, People, other people could read it, and he had hoped that by making it public, maybe some people who read it could change their minds. And he treated this person with white supremacist views as a human being and shared his own humanity. And pretty soon they developed a relationship, and listening happened across both parties. He was able to actually talk, and they talked together. And this improved. The person who had held these white supremacist views came to see things a little differently. But so did Simon better understand why that viewpoint could be come to, why people could think that way, and and what kinds of arguments maybe we needed to make if we didn't want a white supremacist society in order to lovingly, kindly, and humanly engage the question. I was in Boise uh, for a day, Twice a year, sorry, every two years, uh, the clergy get together in what's called the Bishop's Symposium. And all the clergy gather for some particular kind of teaching or exercise. And this year, there were guests, were Jim Henderson and... Ah, uh, boy, I can't remember his, but they're... they're um, Jim Hancock, and they uh, put together a DVD in a whole series called No Joke. And basically they went to Peoria, Illinois, where they found out that there was an unlikely friendship. There was a friendship between an imam and a rabbi and an evangelical pastor. And this friendship had happened because the, the evangelical pastor and the imam had known each other some, And then 2001, I think my, it's hard for me to keep my years straight now that I'm ancient. But during the time of um, when we had, it was 2001 when the towers came down. Yeah, gosh, just every time you say that, I just, um, so it became frightening for the, Imam and his flock to be anywhere public. He said, for the first time, I f- felt like an outsider. And here he'd been living in Peoria, Illinois and making a home there and had never felt like an outsider, even though um, he wasn't what we would, if we're going to stereotype who lives in Peoria, Illinois, we're not going to think of an imam." And the Jim Powell, the pastor, felt like there needed to be a better response than that and was really concerned about the violence that was being threatened. And they, they began creating ways to listen and hear each other. And through this process, the friendship of the rabbi and the imam and the pastor only deepened. Out of this experience came some sort of techniques or ways that we can learn to respond together Without resorting to an argument which only creates pain, right? And one of the things uh, that Brian McLaren was also there uh, at the symposium, one of the things that Brian did, which was sort of hilarious and lovely. he's very bald, was he explained it this way: If somebody says something you don't really don't agree with, just. Smack the top of your head. And if you're bald, it makes this lovely, loud sound. So it's very dramatic. Slap the top of your head and say, gosh, you know, I see that really differently. And that's it. You don't have to fight them or wrestle them to the ground like they're an alligator. But you can voice that you're not in agreement with that because they may believe that everybody thinks like they do. And if they're pressed, or if they're heated, say, you know, I'd love to talk to you more about this. Let's talk about it a different day, though. Let's not talk about it right now. Give everybody a chance to breathe. After that, there's this other couple of ways that you can um, engage these sorts of issues. One is to uh, stay curious. Don't think you know so much. Maybe you're gonna learn something you never imagined. Make room for that in your own life. Stay curious. Hey, what makes you think so? Ask open-ended questions. Where'd you come to that idea? What does that mean to you? Wow, you know, where, where do you think uh, we're, we're going to end up with that? And hang in there when there's conflict. If somebody starts to get conflicted or angry, just, Be calm and say, wow, you know, that's interesting. Hang in there. Sometimes people get a little heated when they're moving into something that matters to them, and when you can get them talking about something that matters in a relational way, things can change. In order to sort of demonstrate this to us, they had a small group of folks come up and create a circle in the center, and they were to talk about gun control. Of course, this was chosen on purpose because it's a hot-button issue, even among clergy. So those folks, I didn't have to do it, sat in a circle and began having conversations about guns. And those of us even listening could feel the tension of that. And they went around and they took turns sharing and asking questions. And there included somebody who was a staunch gun control advocate. There included somebody who had hidden behind tables when there was a shooting. And it included somebody who was an NRA member. <sighs> Suffice it to say that with questions, with being curious, we were able to move into a place where there was not resolution. We weren't inking the Declaration of Independence here, but relationship could be established and maintained, even through difference. And we could think of each other, not in a dehumanizing way of, you're stupid to think that way, but in a human way of, wow, we got to figure this out together. At the end, finally, one of the questions was asked that I wanted asked, and that question was to the NRA guy, Do you agree with what the NRA has been saying and doing? So, the next thing that happened was a very dramatic response. I think the NRA is full of... And then he used the Anglo-Saxon word for poop. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the answer I expected. And in the end, they shared how grateful they had all been to hear each other speak. And the gentleman from the NRA, who belonged to the NRA, said to the staunch advocate, you know, thank you. I didn't realize gun advocates could have reasonable arguments. It helps us, right, to kind of see where we are when Paul, bruised, perhaps bleeding, stops the centurions and says, wait a second, I want a chance to talk. This is his hope. That we can get past the demonizing of one side or another and, and be human beings again together. Simon Tam has one more story that I just have to share. It's just wonderful. Wonderful. In his TED Talk, he talks about how he had originally thought about naming the TED Talk how to talk to a white supremacist and had changed his mind and decided it was better to title it how to talk with a white supremacist. And the story he shares is that the Slants were ready to go and play in a penitentiary. They had been invited to play at a penitentiary. And so they agreed. They were, they're a sort of social justice-oriented band. Simon lives in Portland, Oregon. And they were uh, issued bright orange vests to wear that were kind of clumsy. You know, when you're a musician, they're kind of hot and clumsy. And they said, do we really have to wear these? And the corrections officer said, well, you know, you don't have to. <laughs> but we're going to have a lot of the inmates gathered in a big room together. And if there's trouble, we want to know who to grab out and who to shoot. So they were like, sure, give us the vest, we'll totally wear the vest. So in they went and they're, they're playing the concert and there is a sort of thin line of tape sort of uh, uh, marking which section uh, the inmates can go past. They can't go past that section. And they're playing here. And afterwards, a group of white, clearly marked white supremacists come up to the line. And these are big men, been nothing much to do but work out, uh, covered in swastika tattoos, um, just terrifyingly violent tattoos all over their upper bodies that were they weren't wearing shirts. Um, and one of them, in particular, is Simon talks about where he comes right up to the line And Simon says, it was like things went a little dark. Um, It was intimidating. It felt like this man was towering over him. And I am not going to use my words to paraphrase. I'm going to tell you the next part of what was said. Simon relates it this way. He said, to say he towered over me would be an understatement because I swear he blocked out the sun that day. It felt dark when he approached me, and he comes up to me, and he hands me a piece of paper, and then he asks for an autograph. It's for my daughter, he says. I want to tell her I met the band. And he said, I know what you must be thinking, and I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, but they're mistakes that I don't want my little girl to make. Simon says, you see, he wanted to prove to his daughter that he could change what was in his heart and what was in his mind, even if he couldn't change what was stained into his skin. We love to think of Paul as this upright father of early Christianity, but Paul had a lot more in common with that skinhead than he did with Simon Tam. weird to think about it that way. Resurrection, conversion, transformation can come to any of us. God's hand is already reaching out to us. There is nothing so dark in us that God cannot transform. There is no one so horrific that God cannot reach and uh, transform them. We forget that sometimes. We think human darkness has more power than God, and I am here to assure you, it does not. So this Lent, in conversation with others, remember we are human, and in God all things are possible. Amen. Let us just take a moment to reflect.